Hello, hi. and welcome. <laughs> did she say hi? I didn't hear you. I just said your lips moved. I did say hi <laughs> in my high-pitched voice, my signature move. Maybe it was too high for the <laughs> microphone to capture. <laughs> Maybe if you're under the age of 24, you just heard an <laughs> impossibly high-pitched high. Yeah. Uh, welcome to Got the Runs, the comics podcast with all the sexual chemistry of, well, let's face it, Parker and his many dames. After he he's does, done a job, though. Uh, well, yes, strictly after. Beforehand, as cold as uh, that that frozen heart in his chest, hmm. I guess. One of the uh, classic League of Legends items. Frozen heart? Gives armor and mana. <laughs> nice. You watch Arcane? <laughs> I watched some of Arcane. Did you watch Arcane? I watched Arcane uh, during my recent bout with the novel Coronavirus when I had 18 hours a day to fill and literally did not have the strength to get off the couch. I also, yeah, I I wandered into several series that (laughs) a healthier, uh, happier David would have turned his nose up at. (laughs) You're like, I already have the death. Let me see what this love and robots are about. (laughs) I did consider throwing that on. Um, ended up going with The Legend of Vox Machina instead. Sure, same same type beat. I once saw a tweet that was talking about some episode of Love, Death, and Robots, and so and like all I remember is just the phrase, this is what Love, Death, and Robots should be about. I, was like, <laughs> I feel like they've got a pretty clear mission statement. <laughs> or they have no mission statement. I'm not sure which. Mm. Uh do not plan to watch anytime soon. So what did you think of Arcane? I was, so at first I was like, this is very accessible. And then I realized how many of the characters are like existing League of Legends characters. And I was like, (laughs) this might not be as accessible as I originally thought it was, but it was still pretty accessible. I mean, like there's not, there isn't, there isn't lore to it. Like there, there were like semi established relationships between the, like everyone knew that like, Caitlin and Vi. This is so in the weeds already. Everyone knew that Caitlin and <laughs> this Vi is and a conversation like, that would have like Darwin Cook and Donald Westlake both rolling in their graves, <laughs> knowing that it is preceding an extensive conversation <laughs> with the Parker like media. Well, we'll see how extensive it is. Um, but we're here, of course, today to talk about Richard Stark's Parker, particularly the first two. So, like, what, what? are these exactly because these are these are pretty faithful adaptations of i mean technically four uh richard stark parker novels specifically the hunter the man with the getaway face the seventh and the outfit now the i'm not sure you you read like just the original releases i have the man with the getaway face and the seventh in uh my fine martini edition here as extras. I believe that the man with the getaway face was included with the original, the original copy of the outfit, but I'm pretty sure the seventh is a new bonus story. I think. Okay. You're, you, I'm already confused because I, we haven't, we've only covered the first two, but is we have one only one covered the first ground? two. Yes. There is one called Slayground, but that is, Which I only know cause like great title. Yeah, it is a great title. That one, that one we'll be talking about next time. So apparently, and the, 
I'm seeing on Wikipedia, Slate Ground also contained an adaptation of the seventh. Oh, interesting. As an added bonus. Okay, so, so in the, other one, in the Martini edition, the, man the Getaway Face, the Man with the Getaway Face in mine is included as like a pretty short um, intro to the outfit because it introduces Handy McKay, who is like a pretty oh. major player in the outfit, like a, a key supporting character. He is originally introduced in The Man with the Getaway Face as uh, an accomplice of Parker's on another job, which they suss out a double cross coming in that job like almost instantly and plot their own like reverse cross, basically, and get away clean with the, with all their loot. And so he has Handy kind of like in the back of his head going into the outfit uh, and calls on him for support with the various different uh, schemes that uh, unfold in that. But this is this with the diner and the waitress. Yes, person? that's correct. Okay, so that's so like that's a just... seven-page adaptation of an entire book. Sure. In which he's like complete. He's focused on like what is the most Parkery stuff. He's omitted a lengthy. It's you can't even call it a subplot. Like the entire second half of the book, which is about him like having to kidnap the like body man of the doctor who performs his plastic surgery. It's so complicated and convoluted. Sure. There's like a whole a whole second half to the book that gets cut out, and then the first half is, of course, like pretty like quickly summarized. But it it really is like the hunter. It's it's very interesting. The hunter is like kind of an outlier from the rest of the Parker books, whereas the man with the getaway face is also an outlier in some ways, but also kind of establishes like the formula and the some of like the the more recurring interests i would guess you would say that it's it's more in line with the rest of the series in a lot of ways like even more so than the outfit i would say right i mean yeah i i <laughs> my head is spinning <laughs> um yeah so the the i didn't realize that that was another book that's just like book one of the outfit it wasn't yeah it's like, like a prologue a prologue to the outfit that is included because yeah, because it introduces Handy McKay, who is like such an important character in the outfit, and you can't right. really just like start the outfit and be like, "By the way, this is Handy McKay." You like he had this whole other adventure with Parker. It's not that important, but they're like buddies, right? So oh, I'm already so lost. There's so much going on here. <laughs> so, so let what... me let me ask you this: Had you ever heard outside of the context of like our previous episodes of? Parker as a character of Donald Westlake, the writer of Richard Stark, the writer. What was your familiar familiarity with any of this? So the first time I've heard of Parker is when we were talking about Selena's big score <laughs> and you said, that's Parker. And I said, who's Parker? And then I said, Oh, I remember that he like adapted these books. Darwin cook did. And that's all I know about them. I don't know. I mean, I vaguely maybe have heard Donald Westlake before. Donald Westlake, you might recognize like uh, like he wrote Jimmy the Kid, which was adapted into like a Gary uh, Gary Coleman movie in like the 80s or the 70s. Right. He wrote, I'm trying to think, he wrote the screenplay for um, The Grifters. Not female. Oh, if, I think if you like looked up the cast, you might uh, you might recognize it. He was so Donald Westlake, extremely prolific writer um, in from like the 60s to the early 2000s when he died in 2008, um, primarily of crime fiction, but also frequently ventured into other territory as well, especially in his younger days, uh, made his his uh, bones as a like anonymous softcore porn writer. 
along with fellow uh, luminary of crime fiction, American crime fiction, Lawrence Block, another person I assume you've never heard of. No. They So these guys are both like the next generation of crime writers after like Dashiell Hammett or like sure. Raymond Chandler and contemporaries of like Elmore Leonard, who I assume you are more yes. familiar with. He's, he's that got a lot more, he's got a lot more crossover into like TV and, uh, and film and adaptations, but uh, Donald West, like also widely adapted. He's like, um, actually kind of in the same way as Eisner, he's sort of like the kind of guy who I would say is like your favorite writer's favorite writer where like commercially, I mean, he, he's like kind of like one of the last of like the true, like professional writers, I guess you could say where like, it would be unfair to call him a hack, but also he but, wrote like a hundred books. Yeah. He published like <laughs> eight books in the, in the year 1963. Yeah. He was extremely prolific. Um, like wrote nonstop was not precious about himself or his work at all. He was definitely like very um, much like he, he, I guess maybe in the same way as how we've talked about with cook. Like if you talk to him, I don't think he would say like, I'm an artist. I'm like a literary mind. I'm, you know, blah, blah, blah. He was much more so like my job is to write. And so I write as much as I can because that is how I get paid. And I like to get paid. <laughs> right. So his, his influence is much more so like his cultural footprint is like surprisingly large, I think for how little anybody really knows about him. Like I hadn't right. ever heard of him before I read these comics either, um, which then were like a gateway. I've now read like all the books and, and enjoyed them quite a bit. But before that, I had never heard of him. But then you look and it's like, oh, like he wrote a fair number of screenplays. Like his work has been adapted several times. Like they tapped him when they were working on Tomorrow Never Dies to like put together a James Bond treatment. So he, like he he is like known to the like kind of broader entertainment industry. He is known to like writing circles, especially he's very influential on a lot of writers. But if you like go up to someone on the street and are like, do you know who Donald Westlake is? They probably don't know what you're talking about. Right. Yeah, I was just I didn't realize how many times Parker had been adapted. And also like weirdly has like a crazy list of people who have played Parker. Yeah, and the, also they always change his name for no reason. Well, the reason is that Westlake wouldn't allow them to use the name Parker unless they committed to doing a film series, which no one ever did. Mm, so the only the only person to ever play a character named Parker based on a Parker book is Jason Statham, <laughs> which I'm not sure how exactly he finagled the rights because they do their <laughs> it may shock you all to learn that there's no like Jason Statham Parker franchise. Uh, but he is the only one to play Parker as as named. And that came out after Don Westlake died. So it I assume did. that has yes. something to do with it. Um, but yeah, the <laughs> it's like Anna Karina, who we were talking about this right before we started recording, in this weird Jean-Luc Godard <laughs> adaptation of Parker. Uh, so the, it's also really funny. It's like this this always gets brought up as like, this is a Parker adaptation. I was like looking into it more and it's like Jean-Luc Godard said that like a Parker book was his inspiration. I think it was actually the hunter. Um, he like listed as one of his influences and then Donald Westlake sued him because he didn't like buy an option. <laughs> right. Um, but, but it, it gets kind of like murky at that point because he's like, 
well, I didn't say like it's a Parker movie. I just said that like this, like the Hunter was one of my big influences. So the extent to which it can be called a Parker movie, I think is up for debate. Right. In the same way that it's like, oh, the actually the first James Bond adaptation was Casino Royale in like the 1960s. Yeah. But it's like, it's more spoofing rather than adapting. Right. And then you have <laughs> Lee Marvin, uh, Jim Brown, mm-hmm. which is in my opinion a great cast. <laughs> uh, Robert Duvall. Yes. Mel Gibson. And as you mentioned, Jason Statham. Yeah, the, all all interesting castings because the character as described, there's a certain like physicality that I don't think most of those people have, including like Gibson and Statham, who are both like action guys, but they just don't quite have the like there's he's he's very like I think they put part of the description in The Hunter or maybe not maybe not. Anyways, but as described, he's like very kind of Cro-Magnon sounding and like his physicality is very much emphasized pretty much every time like there's a there's as far as physical descriptions go it's like pretty bare bones and there's a few lines that he repeats kind of like all the time but his physicality is always what's emphasized and like how huge his hands are and how kind of like lumbering his movement is and the like aura of danger that he exudes are are always kind of the focus right and it's like a Jack Reacher type scenario. It is. It is a Jack Reacher type scenario. I was trying to think of like comparable characters um, and Jack Reacher. I, I actually recently was having a discussion with someone uh, on Reddit who was like looking for comics about Jack Reacher types. And I was saying like Parker really is sort of like an amoral Jack Reacher uh, or, or like not that Jack Reacher is like such a moral character, but like. A, a more sociopathic Jack Reacher, I guess. A criminal Jack Reacher. Yeah, he's, he is kind of like, I'm, I'm not like quite even sure exactly how to describe the archetype, but he, I do feel like his influence can be felt in a lot of like Tarantino characters. Sure. Like Jack Reacher for sure would be another one that I would point to. He's almost kind of like an evolution of like the Ronin or um, like even like the man with no name. Insofar as like, again, those those people like characters are usually cast into pretty heroic roles. He's kind of like, what if you completely drained that type of character of any like moral compass or sentiment and had him like exclusively focused on his own like well-being and interests? Yeah. And that's what I was going to say is like a big part of what I found interesting about Parker is just like how amoral he is and that like the beginning of the book is like like we see him beat up like two, two women within like 50 oh yeah pages. He, he kills two women like instantly and one of them one of them he like guilts into suicide and the other one he kills accidentally and he's mostly like oh well this is inconvenient right because of her lack of inhaler <laughs> yeah what am i supposed to do about this body <laughs> right is like what is his takeaway from that yeah and it's like I almost appreciate that because I think in like the age of the antihero, mm-hmm. we're so like people are so inclined to like always soften like, those characters. It. Yeah, because it's like, well, we can't root for them if they're not good. But it's like, no, Parker, <laughs> terrible <laughs> guy. Parker's pretty bad. Yeah, it's it, like when Cook talks about the movies, especially, he basically says like. I don't think there's ever really been a good Parker movie in part because like Hollywood cannot stomach Parker like as written 
And the, the things he always like says in many interviews that I've read, he basically says like, they just can't take him. Like he's got to have a girlfriend. He's got to have a dog. Like Parker doesn't have those things. And, right. and, and as soon as you give him those things, you take the edge off the character. That is such a big part. I think of his appeal and his enduring, you know, popularity. Yeah. Because the other thing I think that is really appealing about him, not that I think like, his lack of morality is necessarily appealing, but it is kind of refreshing. It's it's like um, I was thinking about this. Like he's a funny character for Cook to be so interested in as kind of like the like heroes should be heroes guy. And I did read several interviews with him where he talked about like having to check his own impulses to like soften Parker or to like give him a slightly more heroic bent. And, and he was basically saying, like, I, I'm a guy who, like, believes in the heroic ideal. And it's not always easy for me to, like, write, to eat, to adapt Parker. Like, I'm not even writing him and I'm still tempted to change it. And he basically said, like, when I feel that temptation, I basically call it a day and come back tomorrow when I can kind of, like, gird my will to, to make Parker do what he's supposed to do. But I think that he's kind of an interesting inverse of, like, the Captain America type who I think is, or or the Superman type for that matter, where we talked so much in New Frontier about how like, oh, the dream of the superhero is like these people who know what the right thing is and they do it. And Parker doesn't do the right thing per se, but he does like the overlap is he's got this like strength of conviction and the personal competence to like make other people abide by those convictions. And so it's, it's the like, he's, he's good at what he does, which it, you just like have to respect basically from like a kind of like Protestant work ethic type of like angle. It's like, he's, he's competent, he's proficient, he's professional. And he is like more so than any of the other people around him. So that whatever he decides is right. Other people are kind of like forced to bend themselves to match that, which is like very dark and so be like when it's parker that's a scary thought and like the obvious authoritarianism and like fascism of that comes out but like really that is also true of captain america and superman it's just easier to swallow because the things that they have convictions about are like you know the heroic ideal and not like you shouldn't kill anybody unless they cross you <laughs> right and and that is like I, well, that's two you, you hit on two things i was going to mention one of which is like his competency and that he is like very competent. And I think that that almost in a way like stands in for like a moral code to some extent that like, even though the things like his objectives are not always like morally right, Mm -hmm. but because like he is the best at executing the job, (laughs) there's like some inherent satisfaction in doing that. And then the other thing is like in these two books, especially at the very least for the most part, he like his objectives are always like, someone has wronged me Mm -hmm. and must be like punished accordingly. Yeah. And even like, so as I was thinking about like, who are some characters who fit into the, like the Parker archetype, another character who came to mind for me is Cliff Booth of, uh, of once a time, once upon a time in Hollywood. But like, he's, he's a bit more of a stretch because he's so like kind of charismatic and personable and all that. But I was thinking about like the spawn ranch scene in particular, where it's like, Parker would never go like check up on a friend because he doesn't have any friends. But if he was like found himself somewhere and there was like a bunch of hippies hanging around and he's like a guy that I used to work with who did a good job, who I respect 
is being taken advantage of, he would go in and like check it out and be like, is everything okay here? And if he didn't like what he saw, he would like go outside and become really violent and like beat a guy up for like a relatively minor provocation and like humiliate him in front of all his friends and force him to change his tire and then be like, well, George says he's okay. So I guess I'll leave, but you know, not before I make sure that like nobody has crossed me and I'm satisfied with like the situation that I see here. Like to me, that's a very Parker scene. Yeah, but the the thing about him is, like, he doesn't... Re- it's not, like, one of those things where it's, like, like a Batman where it's, like, well, look, he has a moral code, even though it's, like, not doesn't necessarily align with no, like society's morals. No, he's got, like, a professional, like... <laughs> I, I, I don't, like, I don't know, even know what he's you would handbook. call it. He's, <laughs> like, he's, like, the one-man, like, royal college of, like, professional thieves where he's, like... And, of course, as we all know, these are, like, our standards and practices, and anyone who, like violates it has to be sanctioned by the college yeah which which gets back to the competency thing where it's like well like i guess if i were robbing some chilean revolutionary or whatever <laughs> they are it's like robbing some revolutionary is like i guess i wouldn't leave any loose ends i guess he does have to die you're mm-hmm. right parker and it's like he doesn't like cut any corners either where like again i so i reread uh, the hunter and the man with the getaway face because i had some extra time this week And it's like the extent to which he doesn't cut corners is also something that really stands out where like the man with the getaway face, the last like two chapters are basically about like what he does with his like loot from the diner job. And it's like pages and pages of like him and Handy take all the rolls of change out into the woods and like bury them or throw them in rivers because it's not worth like it's there's not enough money for how difficult it is to like carry around all that change and like change it into a bank without getting caught so you have to hide it and then he like drives across five states and every time there's like a mid-sized city he stops and opens a bank account and deposits five hundred dollars and that's all he does for like six days (laughs) it's like i guess like it, it emphasizes the extent to which it's like these are the things you have to do like it's not it's it's very exciting at times, but there's also a lot of like monotony and routine and things that you have to do like carefully, even though they're extremely boring and mundane. If you don't do them right, then like you're flushing your life down the toilet and he's not willing to flush his life down the toilet. And so uh, Westlake always documents like the, the extent to which after part or after the hunter, these books become like procedurals basically is like crazy because they are all about documenting those like, those little things and then there'll be like one chapter where everything kind of explodes and then after that again it's like and then here's how parker like meticulously cleans up the mess <laughs> right and I, like yeah like i was saying like i think that is sort of the stand-in for morality is just like he he's very logical mm-hmm. and like he like he does all the things that have to be done and then like doesn't really do the things that don't have to be done. Like he doesn't like really have, I guess like alcohol, but he doesn't really have like vices. Well, even alcohol, like he would never drink to become drunk. He drinks like socially, you know what I mean? I don't know. The first one does start with him just like downing a handle of vodka. Well, the first one also like he has just like basically walked across the country. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. But yeah, like he doesn't really have like like he wouldn't be like swayed by a woman which is like obviously a big part of the parker uh of it all Mm -hmm. (laughs) um but it's like like he he never lets anything like any of his own like outside desires or even just a greed for more money for example Mm -hmm. like that's never 
a consideration for him because he like it's like well that's not logical like that's how you get caught or like get put in a bad situation and like we can't have that one of the most interesting things about his character is like the the lack of clarity about like does he enjoy his life and like what does he do for fun like why is he a bank robber because when you see him during his downtime whether on the job or off it's like he goes and literally like sits on a beach for like six months and does nothing. And it's like, I would get so bored. And it's because he doesn't have any personal relationships. He literally just like goes and sits on the beach until his money starts to run out. And then you see him like anytime he's like on a job and he's not like working, there's so many sequences, especially in like the novels where it's like he has to pass time. And so it's actually, they do it in this one too. Like when he's staking out the hotel that he thinks Mal is in, and accidentally like kills that woman. He just like turns on the TV and literally just like watches TV all day to like pass the time. And like in the outfit, I don't think it's in the comic, but there's a few times where it's just like, oh, he and Handy just like go see like four movies because they just need somewhere where they can go and exist like without spending a ton of money and just like, like literally just pass the time. So it's like he has nothing that he does for fun. He doesn't seem to like enjoy anything including like for as comfortable and luxurious as his like downtime kind of seems to the normal person, he doesn't seem to like derive any particular pleasure from it, but he also doesn't like do his job because he loves it so much. He's just really good at it. Yeah. And it's uh, the, you just sort of describing that made me think of John wick where it's like the only thing he wants is to like live comfortably and be left alone pretty much. And like, uh, the rest of his actions are just like, well, this is <laughs> this is how one makes money. Like, yeah. if you're if you're someone who like wants to stay at a resort for like nine months of the year and then do one week of work and then stay at a resort for another nine months, like, I guess bank robbing is the play. <laughs> yeah, and and like again, it also reminds me of like kind of like the reacherness of him as well because he is a guy who like his whole kind of thing is that like he wants to be left alone and he keeps getting like dragged into other people's stuff. And like in the same way, I mean, Parker puts himself in a position where other people are just like going to double cross him by nature of his work. But if he had it his way, he would just like walk into a place, pick up two huge sacks of money and walk out and then like not do anything again for nine months. Yeah. And it's like a big, what sort of becomes a big part of, the especially in the outfit is like he has this network of people who are like like-minded and respect him as a professional and like the like these people and again it's like they don't have a moral code but they will like they will act in service of like what they consider to be like this is the right way to do it Mm -hmm. and like we'll we'll do these like like (laughs) they will like do favors for parker more or less and like not even favors for Parker per se, where it's like, yeah, they did it mutually beneficial. Yeah. They did it because they asked him or because he asked them to, but they also did it because they were like, I know I can do this and walk away with $80,000 completely clear. Yeah. And I guess like, that's like sort of an interesting, it is a very, like very masculine and very like, not, not quite fascist per se, but like the whole, like it's very like utilitarianist yeah. and like, I guess objectivist that it's like, well, the reason that people like that Parker has these like friends is that he's providing value to them, whether like he's doing jobs with them or he's like giving them information or whatever. And like this whole like web of respect is just built on like mutual benefit to each other. Yeah, for sure. Cook 
often talks about these. Uh, <laughs> there is a Donald Westlake short story called Too Many Crooks. Just want to put that out there. Um, Cook, when talking about these books, and I think in particular about The Hunter, but it applies to the outfit as well, describes it as a, like a black comedy about corporate culture in America. Sure. And I do think that like the outfit really ties into that as well, because it is about like basically like the softening of like the American man as a result of like corporatization in America. Whereas the, like um, the mechanics as they call themselves at one point in the, in the books stand out as these like individuals for whom like excellence and like pride in their craft is still sort of the most important thing to them as professionals and like contrasting basically these people who take on vocations as like a true, like truly vocational work, I guess, as opposed to these employees uh, of the outfit for like in, in Cook's view, it's all kind of like a, a very like pitch black satire of like corporate America, basically, which I think yeah. is a pretty good take on it. Oh, definitely. I mean, like the whole idea of like, the investment firm being the front for the outfit and things like that. And like, like, yeah, like it sort of gets back to that idea of like your worth is built in like what you are bringing to the table compared to the outfit where it's like, these guys are all worthless because like they are like basically like their, their self-interest will always like outweigh their, any dedication they have to their job. Whereas for Parker, it's like, his job and his self-interest are synonymous because if the job doesn't go well, then like he does not live. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like he, he is planned. Whereas the outfit is organized and would like postulate that it's better to be organized than planned. And Parker's like whole thing, I guess is basically like rubbing it in their face, the extent to which being organized does nothing to protect them from like competent individuals. Right. Exactly. Um, so do you want to take a stab at a plot summary sure. for this? I'm, I'm intimately familiar with <laughs> all of these, so I can very, very gladly do it. So the hunter follows Parker, a character who we've talked about in detail. And but I've heard that people are calling it the hunty. Can you verify I that? I can't speak to that. Um, <laughs> I, did, uh, I did hear that originally Parker was going to drag Mal Resnick, but instead they decided to have him murder him. Um, slay him. Yes, slay, slay him, you might say. Um, he gets his ass. Uh, so anyways, Parker, a character who we have now discussed at length, is a professional, independent criminal, particularly a thief of uh, like a bank robber, armored car, heist job type guy who is back from the dead. He worked a job with his wife and a few associates and was double-crossed by his wife and one of uh, his partners, Mal Resnick, and left for dead. He uh, escaped from prison and made his way from California to New York to get his revenge on Mal Resnick, which he does by tracking down a variety of leads, starting with his wife and basically murdering his way uh, (laughs) through until he finally is able to get his hands on Mal. But at the moment that he gets Mal in his hands, he realizes that uh, Mal also stole a bunch of money from him, which he would like to have back. And so he turns his vendetta uh, from being against Mal Resnick individually to being against the outfit, the organized crime syndicate for which he works uh, and from whom he would like to extract the debt that he feels he is owed. And so he once again begins murdering his way uh, through the outfit until he is 
at last able to secure his $45,000 that he feels is owed, but uh, garners himself the enmity of like all organized crime in America in the process. Right. And which is, I'll say it a good bit. Yeah, it is a it is a good bit. Yeah, I mean, I again, like I, I sort of alluded to, like I don't know how long this episode is going to be <laughs> because, like, I mean, maybe you could take the lead here since you seem to have a a vested interest in Parker. But like, I mean, like I don't know how much I have to say about it beyond just like I like these stories. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they are they're good stories. Um, like I think again, I, I think on a previous episode I described Elmore Leonard as being a very workmanlike crime writer, which I say like it feels like a backhanded compliment, but I would also say it of Donald Westlake and the Richard Stark alias as well. But the like it's just when you read like a Parker book, it's never gonna be worse than pretty good. It's also rarely better than like really good (laughs) but it's it's just consistently like good interesting stories now i will say the hunter is a bit like i said a bit of an outlier i do think it is like at the end of the day one of the better parker books but there is like an element of that and maybe i'm being colored by cook's like interpretation of it as kind of like a dark comedy but it is in some ways like a little bit wackier, I guess I would say, than a lot of the later ones. I feel like the characters who Parker runs across are more so like characters as opposed to like other people, it, just in terms of like some of their speech patterns and things like that. It feels more like a noir, like a pure noir or like a detective story than the outfit did for me. Yeah, it's like uh, the. I think it's particularly like the dialogue is quite stylized in a way that like he doesn't ever really do again just in terms of like uh, I can't remember the guy's name but the, like the very first guy who he meets at his wife's apartment who's like making the cash drop Sydney yes Sydney who keeps saying like I must not I must not may I telephone <laughs> right. like he's a very kind of like clownish character of the sort right. that like you never really see again in Parker books Um, at least not to that kind of like degree of stylization, I guess I would say. So it is kind of like interesting to go back to it for the first time. Like I read, I read like every Parker book in between the last time I read the Hunter and now, and to go back to it and now having like the full kind of catalog behind it, I am sort of like, this is a little sort of like just zanier than so many of the others. And I say that, like, I mean, like the Parker books can get like kind of zany sometimes, especially sort of in the middle when he starts to like experiment with genre a little bit. And like, it gets like, there's like a James Bond one. There's like a cold war spy one. Um, like the score, which we'll talk about is, is like, a, like the most maximalist version of a Parker book. Like some of them can get a little crazy and a little high concept, but even so, like there's just, like the stark persona, I guess, in terms of his writing has like not really fully developed. And I think it does, it does come through now. Like we said, uh, these are, or I guess, like I said, um, these are like very, very faithful. <laughs> That's what me said. <laughs> oh boy. These are very faithful adaptations. He does not change very much. And so like all the dialogue pretty well is like written by Richard Stark and it, it adheres to the plot very closely. So there's not a ton to say about, like cook necessarily at least as far as the writing goes writer yeah Yeah. i will also say originally this was written to be like a standalone novel um and he's changed the ending 
that's kind of like the only big change. And the, the ending of the book does kind of point to how it would have been as a standalone novel. So he makes like a brief reference in the comic to Jimmy Delgado's, which is like a much larger part in the book where he tries to go link up with this um, smuggler that he knows for the outfit named Jimmy Delgado. And he is out of town on a job. But while he's looking for him, he runs into these cops and kind of like outs himself as someone who knows about narcotics and shows them the fake driver's license that he makes, which is a great sequence in this book, and just kind of like attracts their attention unintentionally. So then at the end of the book, after he's like gotten away clear with the money from the outfit, he goes back to his hotel and is stopped by the cops because they arrested Jimmy Delgado at the border smuggling in narcotics. And they're like, and then we remembered that weird guy hanging around Jimmy Delgado's dad's like (laughs) bodega uh, talking to us about narcotics. And so he has to like and, and they like pierce through his fake ID and all that. So he has to make a run for it. And then he like throws one of his suitcases at them and runs away with the other one that he thinks has the money and gets away and is like in a cab headed for New Jersey. And then he opens it and realizes that he kept the wrong suitcase, um, which is like the kind of ironic ending that Stark will use a lot like that. A lot of the Parker novels, it's again, that's a little bit more comedic than your typical kind of Parker ending, but that sort of ironic twist he does a lot. Yeah, which makes sense. Like, I <laughs> I assumed as much because it is a case where it's like, well, this guy can never really, like, find peace. So yeah. he always has to be, like, losing his money in some form or fashion. Yes. So he, like, sent in the, the hunter to his publishers and he, like, wrote back and was like, if you change the ending so that Parker can, like, return for a sequel... I will publish like three Parker books a year, (laughs) like turn this guy into a franchise basically. And so he adds on a bit at the end where Parker does like another job and hits the outfit again and like replenishes his cash flow. And then it goes into the man with the getaway face where he gets plastic surgery to like avoid being ID'd by the outfit and, uh, and so on and so forth. But you can, like, I do think that the fact that it was originally just meant to be kind of a one-off story is still is still palpable, I guess, in a few ways, and accounts for some of the difference. The yeah, I mean, I guess it it, it certainly lives well enough as a standalone. Um, that was not the ending of the first one was not the ending that confused me. The ending of uh, the outfit confused me more. Well, the ending of the outfit like, has also been changed. Well, should we talk about it now? Because like sure. I was just confused as like like what it this is nothing <laughs> that, that it ends. And he's just like, and it was chill <laughs> that the last page is like, I'm going to go have a drink at some place at uh, Frank Sinatra's like <laughs> lounge. Yeah. So the original ending isn't, it's not that different. It's just like he and handy ride off into the sunset basically. But uh, so Darwin cook got in the habit of, instead of doing like a full blown press tour for these books, when he was like promoting each one, he would just do one like extremely long form interview with one outlet. So the one he did for the outfit, uh, the interviewer put it, (laughs) it's like, he basically says like, I didn't think it was very Parker for him to like drive away with handy. And the interviewer says, 
in quotes, Handy, you're my best friend. And that like <laughs> right. that is kind of what the ending of the outfit is. Um, and I do think that he's got a point that like that's not very Parker. And so instead of it being like, and so these two chums like rode away into the sunset, it's just like, and so Parker was finished the job. And so as always, he was horny AF. So he went to like the nearest watering hole to like pick somebody up. Sure. Especially since like a, a part of that book is like, Handy is getting to, I keep wanting to say Phil Handy because that was an assistant coach for the Raptors mm. now at the Lakers. But like a, a part of that book is like Handy is like losing his edge yes, and that's wants a, to open a diner. Yeah, that's also part of uh, the man with the getaway face, which is another job that he claims is going to be his last. Handy Handy has about like four or five last jobs with uh, with Parker sure. when all said and done. Sure. Um, just before we go back to the Hunter, I will say that I just realized that. I assume Frank Sinatra's Cal Neva Lodge is like on the border of California and Nevada, which is also the plot of the film Bad Times at the El Royale. I just wanted to mention that. <laughs> Classic. Um, so, yeah, like I said, very faithful ad- adaptation apart from like a couple of noteworthy changes. Uh, so there's not much to say about Cook as a writer. Now, the art, on the other hand, is where I think he really makes his mark. He's doing everything himself, like everything himself. And like, he's really trying to channel sort of like the spirit of it all. Um, Not Will Eisner's the spirit, but you know, the, the Donald Westlake spirit of it all. So Westlake died basically like right before his first kind of like draft of book one was done. Um, He tells a very sad story about like talking to Westlake on the phone and being like, I was going to send you some PDFs, but I wanted you to like really appreciate, you know, kind of like the object. So we printed off like some, some nice, like bound up copies of what I finished and I'm FedExing them to you. And he was like, that's great. I'm on vacation, but I'll look at them on Monday. And then he like died while he was away on the vacation and never got to like actually look at any of the finished pages, but he was very involved in the development uh, of the hunter. So lots of consultation there. He, literally made these books up as he went along (laughs) like his his method to the writing was to say like each chapter is going to be inspired by like the preceding one (laughs) so he didn't like plot (laughs) anything out he literally just like wrote as he went and like made it yeah made it up as he went along which is more palpable in some of the books than others but so uh cook knew about that and like wanted to do a very similar thing so he didn't like um he didn't do layouts for any of the pages. He just drew and like as kind of not not as fast as possible, but like didn't really give himself time to do revisions. So like once he finished penciling a page, he would then ink it and color it and letter it. He was doing as much of it by hand as possible, including like the blue wash that's over everything in the Hunter. They, he switches the colors for each of the books. Um, yeah. But very similar to like the sculptor, it would be the closest kind of visually. We've done a few that have this sort of like monochrome wash. But he was doing all of that in watercolor with a brush, which hilariously like the long form interview with uh, for the for the hunter that he did was with uh, it was like a roundtable conversation that they did instead. So it was him, Tom Spurgeon, who's a journalist who is kind of like moderating Ed Brubaker and Scott Dunbeer, his editor. And when he says that he's doing like the they've all they've all got like advanced copies and he's like, and so I did this wash by hand and they're all like, what are you talking about? <laughs> are you like, literally it's just like Ed Brubaker. Like I thought this looked more like a scan than a Photoshop. That's crazy. Tom Spurgeon. 
whoa. <laughs> <laughs> right. So it does look crazy. It looks crazy. It sounds like it was probably insanely time consuming and like he never like started over pages. So like there are some like errors or like gaffes that ordinarily he would fix. But because he's like trying to stick to this spirit of like kind of, you know, no revisions, no corrections, making it up as you go along. He just like was like, well, say la vie, like the Parker books aren't perfect either. <laughs> um, right. And like, and kind of went full steam ahead, which is like, these are all things that are like, this is why I talked about it so much in the previous episodes is like, it's such an obvious passion project for him. It's like such a clear labor of love that he's like, I want to do all of it myself. I want to like emulate the like kind of working style like I'm going to spend like hundreds of hours with these books. I'm going to change as little as possible. It's all about like, how can I tell these stories I love visually uh, in a way that is compelling and like aesthetically pleasing in terms of like era. I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't ask for more really. <laughs> what do you, what, what do you like? Mean? Like, I mean, just having the like opening splash page be like New York oh, 1962. Sure, sure, sure. It's like, Ah, yes, like the Darwin Cook era. <laughs> <laughs> right, the, the, the like, Cook period. Yeah, the like one time period that he would like be, you know, that you would most like think of him to draw. Yeah, absolutely. And the what's interesting about these books is like they kind of vacillate between like, it's so, like the first probably 15 pages has no dialogue, maybe more. Yeah, which like bold choice. <laughs> very bold choice and it, like i mean we'll talk a little bit about sort of like the benefits of the graphic novel as the medium for these mm-hmm. but like it starts like so cleanly with like with this basically like whole story of parker like entering the city he like basically pulls like 10 different cons yeah. <laughs> to like scrounge up all of like like a little bit of money yeah. and like a suit and a driver's license it's, it's very stuff. cool as far as being like it shows him at the start well you don't even really see his face for a long time but it shows you him at the start and he's like so raggedy so run down so beat up and it's like here's how this guy goes from having absolutely nothing to being in a position where he can like get a hotel room have a nice meal out and like get like prepared to kind of like reclaim his life in one afternoon and it's extremely cool. There's very little dialogue and like it's it's it really takes advantage, I guess, not to say that like it was it was at the time it was just of the era. But it's like the perfect time for crime stories to take place because it's like the overlap between like modern conveniences, but like old time, like lack of security. So the fact sure. that he can like really easily forge a driver's license and then just like walk around to banks until he finds one that has an account with the same name as his driver's license. And like, boom, now he has a checkbook, which like when they call to be like, is this check good? The bank will be like, why? Well, yes, it is. Um, and like, right. that's as far as it goes. It just like, it really does instantly transport you to this era and be like, this guy really is kind of like a shark among like the minnows here in a lot of ways in terms of like the extent to which a lot of like the society is just built on an assumption of like mutual good intent, which he doesn't have. Right, Right, exactly. And, you know, we haven't really mentioned it, like it is a very sketchy style. It's a lot less like clean and detailed because like I, I, it's like they're, to some extent, there are sort of, like, two Darwin Cooks, where mm-hmm. it's, like, the super clean style and, like, the the New Frontier kind of, like, sensibilities and storytelling. Yeah. And then there's, like, the Parker side, which is, like, sketchier and, like, a little more down and dirty. 
it and really like, like it fits here too. Like you can't, you wouldn't want to do Parker like clean. <laughs> no, definitely. And uh, the other thing that like it it feels like to me storyboards because it is so like sketchy and feels can feel kind of like haphazard at times. And so, but then I was sort of considering that and I was like, oh, well, like, so it's like a movie, which is something that we think about and talk about a lot when we approach comics. But then it's like, he is very much, I think what's great about this medium is that like, he's in control of the time scale in a much more like concrete way than he would be in a movie. And that sort of like, manipulation takes away like i guess some of the things that i find boring about noir to some extent we've also talked about this several times yeah but like the way that he can like depict these scenes and sort of like has the control of like is this gonna last three pages is this gonna last one page are we gonna see this happen in like three panels and having that sort of control over the time scale and also like the ability to present a lot of things without dialogue or without any text, I think, really works to his advantage. Yeah, like it, it does. This this beginning sequence does really feel like an opening credits. But yeah, it also happens in like a very snappy way. It does. Like when when you finally get to the shot where he's like in the bathroom of the diner and like splashes the water on his face and then like looks up in the mirror and you like finally see his face and the water is running off it. It does feel like it should it should be like introducing whoever as Parker. <laughs> like Robert Duvall is. Yeah. And like <laughs> thunderous applause. Look at that picture you sent me. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> picture of Robert Duvall as Parker. And it's just him in like a tank top holding a revolver. <laughs> he looks like Robert Duvall and is like basically bald already. Yeah. That uh, uh, that movie apparently is really good. Um like one of the I best. I imagine they would be good. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm interested to watch it. I've never seen any of the movies, but uh, but yeah, of course. I'd, I'm not sure if you would have seen anything about it, but um, famously, Donald Westlake always said that if he doesn't like like to cast people per se, but he always pictured Parker looking like um, Jack Palance, so that is who he's modeled on in The Hunter. And of course, it's always funny because it's like, who does Parker look like? And it's like, well, in the second book, he gets like significantly <laughs> appearance altering plastic surgery. So like, <laughs> I feel like he didn't look that different. He I didn't. He didn't look that different. It is like it is funny. And it's it's in like the outfit as well. But it's like for the next like 15 books, every time, like every single Parker book has a chapter where somebody has to be like, you ain't Parker. I've met Parker and he didn't look nothing like you. And he has to like prove that he is Parker. <laughs> it's right. just like this funny little box that he wrote himself into at the start, probably not thinking that he was going to be writing this character for the next like 40 right. years. But, uh, but cook talks about how basically like in his sort of vision of it, number one, like at the time you couldn't get plastic surgery that made you look like that different. Like, they, right. they couldn't really like change the shape of your face or, or like that kind of thing really. And for him, it was also supposed to be sort of representative of Parker's emotional regression where like, even for how like kind of cold he is in the hunter, that is like, we're, we're watching him kind of like go through not the process of losing, but like come to terms with the fact that like his wife and his like fortune and his, his old life is gone. And so he's back to being like a completely self-reliant person who like disdains those who are foolish enough to trust others. 
So he's like redesigning his face to be like, it's not a different guy. It's just like a rougher, meaner, like rawer version of that guy who like you might not necessarily clock him as the same person. But like there's a, there's not that much to change because it's the same guy just kind of like with the the edifice of a happy life stripped away. Sort of sanded down. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I like that. So oh, the other thing is like, so what I was going to say is like, it vacillates between these long sequences. Like that, like it starts to get a little more dialogue heavy as the book goes on. But like for the first 45 pages, there's not a lot of dialogue. Yeah. And then you get into the flashback of like how this job went down and it's like smash cut to you are now reading a book. Yes. Yeah. And like the outfit also does this as kind of like a matter of necessity but like in describing one of the heists in the outfit he does what i usually consider one of my like cardinal sins of comics which is to just have prose yeah (laughs) like order i'm i'm still not crazy about it in the outfit but i recognize the challenge of doing five pretty like narrative heavy heists in a row and he's like choosing to to vacillate between different styles for each of them like i can i can understand that but like one of my biggest complaints about a book i otherwise really like the now of brown by glenn dillon is that in like the last 10 pages to kind of like resolve the like the second act climax basically is like a two-page spread of a book written by one of the characters that like just explains what happened and like (laughs) where it was like I, I I can't get into it too much, but it's it's just like two pages of prose text being like, so this is what happened and this is what it meant. And I'm just like, wow, what a terrible use of a graphic medium to have it be a drawing of a book with two pages of text. <laughs> it normally it normally makes me quite uh, quite rageful. But he does talk about the decision to like go to a pretty text heavy approach in that interview uh, with Tom Spurgeon and Ed Brubaker and Scott Dunbeer that I'm going to try and find here. Sure. And like, yeah, I mean, it also does always just make me think of Watchmen, especially because he likes to do the, where it's like, it's a magazine article. Mm-hmm. Um, in this case, the magazine is crime confessions weekly. Yeah. And it is, it's literally just the text of the book. Yeah, that the one sequence, especially when it, the casino heist, mm-hmm. is pure text with like a, yeah. f- a like three or four illustrations. Yeah, the club and then it gets two job. Into, yeah, and then it gets into a little more of a cartoony style. Yeah, they and, do. They like do a said, few he's different working in a few different yeah. ways. Yeah. So Tom Spurgeon notes the exact same point that you did, basically, and says, "I wanted to ask you about the shift in presentational modes right around page forty-five. Um, maybe the third or fourth extended scene into the book. You start with this lovely picture of Parker and his wife at a hotel, and from there you move into several pages of heavy narration that's very different from the pantomime that starts the book and the more traditional words and pictures comics that come right after the opening. Why did you change the way you presented the story at that point? And Cook says, when you're looking at this from a storytelling standpoint, you're trying to find subtle ways to shift gears and control pacing in a way that a book or film can't do. If there's one thing that you can bring to a book like this that's perhaps well known, it's a fresh look at certain things. You can take time to really blow it out at the beginning and getting to know him visually. You'll notice that most of the scenes that take place in the here and now have very, very sparse narrative. They're almost all dialogue and visually driven. Narrative has been stripped down to what I considered essential character or plot stuff that you needed to have. 
when you go into the flashbacks, which we happen to do twice in the book, I move into a denser narrative. It evokes that sense of someone telling you a story, and it allows me to cover more ground in fewer pages, and it gives us a format that distinguishes the flashback from the real-time story without having to do big scallops all around the panels. So it is, it is like, it definitely sounds like for him, it's much more so kind of a practical consideration of just like, this book can't be 500 pages, and there's going to be points where I kind of have to just do like an information dump. Yeah, and, you know, he did mention also the thing that I mentioned, which was that he has the ability to control the pacing a lot more than he does in any other medium, which I think is a great point. (laughs) (laughs) What else do we want to talk about here? Yeah, I'm just uh, I'm just flipping through. Oh, actually, this is maybe a good point to talk about uh, the fourth participant in that uh, that interview and the man to whom my Parker Martini edition is dedicated. The only wow. collaborator uh, other than Richard Stark, a.k.a. Donald Westlake, uh, with Darwin Cook on these books, which is Scott Dunbeer, who we mentioned briefly in the last one. But I do think that he is like a low key, extremely important figure to these books kind of getting made. The Martini edition is like basically dedicated to Scott Dunbeer, who was also the original editor of the the books themselves and served as kind of like the introduction between Cook and Westlake to kind of like get the ball rolling on this. And then also basically was like the champion for getting this to be made in the way that it was, which is like Cook has like kind of total design control over the entire thing. And so like the design of the covers, the design of the books themselves, the like paper stock, the like kind of like not to say that it's a bold per se artistic choice to do like the wash that he does. But even I feel like just the fact that he was able to go ahead and do it in that like manual time consuming way that kind of blows everyone else away. It's the kind of like care and attention to detail that you can't really get away with for most corporate comics. And like, this is not per se a corporate comic. It was published by IDW, um, which I'm pretty sure the I stands for independent. Uh, (laughs) And the DW stands for Arthur's sister. (laughs) (laughs) IDW. I bet there's a... (laughs) You bet there's one. <laughs> I don't actually bet, but I could see there being like a Rome themed, an episode where Arthur learns about Rome called I, DW. <laughs> what? <laughs> like I, Claudius. Yeah. But like I, DW. And it's um, a joke about the comics company? No. Well, yes. <laughs> For me, it's a joke about the comics company. Arthur does not say I, DW. He says A, DW. <laughs> Yeah, Arthur says that. Arthur Fonzarelli. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Anyways, these are like it's it's still a company that like has a publisher, has like, you know, a budget and probably not a very big budget and like they're giving Cook space to make decisions that are like definitely not cheap and like not commercial and I feel like are possible in part because it's Darwin cook and they're like, well, it's Darwin cook. Like (laughs) he's got a pretty good sense of like things that look good, but Scott Dunbeer is like a pretty interesting guy to have as the editor. So he, his like kind of claim to fame now. And I think that cook also like kind of shouts this out in the forward is that he started out as an art dealer and then was hired by Wildstorm before it was like a DC entity to be an editor. 
And then when DC mm-hmm. bought Wildstorm out, he was like, I've got this idea for something called Absolute Editions. <laughs> so he like pioneered the Absolute line, which I feel like we have mentioned Absolutes many times, but maybe sure. not gotten into detail. But these are like over oversized books that were originally supposed to be like, we're both going to present like the the notable stories with, you know, top notch art in uh, like the largest format that's kind of like commercially available so that you can get kind of the maximum impact of the art and we're going to do it with like the highest quality materials um, and we're going to like jam it full of extras and it's going to be kind of like the most deluxe presentation a book can get and it's the sort of treatment that you afford kind of like the finest stories that we have to offer and so when you look at the early absolutes it's like Watchmen, Dark Knight, Kingdom Come, New Frontier, a couple of Wildstorm properties as well. I think The Authority and Planetary are the main first two, uh like League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, so like things like that from like, you know, the the like highest tier creators, most kind of artistically significant works. And it's because there's this like mind behind it that is like kind of the brain of an art dealer and someone who's really passionate about these things. When he leaves Big Two Comics and goes to IDW, he's like, I've got this idea for the artist edition, (laughs) which is like, um, I think you've probably seen my artist editions. They are like the highest quality possible scans you can do that he takes like from the original art themselves and reproduces at original artboard sizes, which is like, they're like massive sheets of art. And he takes like the original pencil art and it's like a completely unique way of experiencing comics art that like it's 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 totally unlike just like picking up an issue of a comic and opening it up especially if you've never seen like original art before it's pretty mind-blowing to like experience the art in this way so yeah i guess all this to say like just like scott dunbeer is a guy who i personally have a lot of respect for who has pioneered some of like my favorite ways of experiencing a comics art and so it's not surprising to me that he is kind of like the editor on this project and someone who Cook puts a lot of faith in and has a lot of respect mm-hmm. as someone who he like, it just seems to me like a natural working relationship that Cook would have this guy who he's like, well, this guy like gets what I'm trying to do. And he's not approaching it from like the perspective of what's the most commercially viable. He's pr- approaching right. it from the perspective of like, what's the best thing we can do that they won't say no to. <laughs> Right. And I'm so glad that you discovered the point that you were driving towards (laughs) with that extended digression. Um, Just because I won't be able to get it out now that it's been implanted in my head. This is now talking about something you said like 10 minutes ago, Mm -hmm. but it sounds like you're talking about a white woman at brunch because you're you're giving Cook a lot of latitude and there's care and attention to detail. Yeah, okay, like a, sure. Like a Karen. Yeah, got it. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, Scott Dunbeer also was like the editor for the whole Alan Moore, America's Best Comics line uh, while he was at Wildstorm. Current job is the uh, director of special projects, or sorry, the special projects editor at IDW. He was also the brain behind the martini editions of these, the second of which just came out like a couple months ago, which at this point, of course, we're like a few years past uh, Cook's death. So Cook was heavily involved with packaging up the two that we're talking about today for the first martini edition. He provided like all these portraits of like 
depictions of Parker in Hollywood uh, that are really cool, like all kinds of stuff. And so for this new one, since he wasn't able to contribute, he had Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips, who are now kind of the like guiding lights of crime comics. Uh, Like Sean Phillips did the whole like design for the book. The two of them collaborated for a Grofield short story who like we briefly meet Grofield in, um, in the outfit. Uh, He's like the actor who, uh, who works with Parker on uh, his particular job that he, uh, that he pulls off against the outfit. They did like an original story about him or maybe adapted one of the Stark books about him. Anyways, they contributed. He convened like this special roundtable conversation with Brubaker and Bruce Tim and him that I think I referenced uh, previously as well, mm-hmm. where they talk about times that they were like in physical altercations with Darwin Cook. Um, right. uh, so so yeah, he at like on top of like kind of the the interest in art itself has also always been very kind of like interested in the legacy of artists that he worked with closely. So like another example would be Jean-Paul Lyon, who we talked about for a little bit in the Ex Machina episodes, who also died relatively recently. He like organized with his family to put out an artist edition of like one of his big passion projects with all of the proceeds going towards his family. So he is like, yeah, he is an interesting figure insofar as like he's an executive and an editor who has never been an artist, has never been a writer, has never like worked kind of directly on comics production and yet is in his own way this like artist of the comic book as like a, a physical artifact he's like the superstar producer kind of it's like it's it's more so he's like the like restoration specialist who like sure he's like the criterion collection yeah basically where like yeah he is kind of like the criterion collection where he's like these are the things that need to be preserved and not only preserved but like presented in a way that is like purer and like more artistically like you know pure than any other presentation of it has previously been right and something that came across my mind that's only tangentially related but the fact that darwin cook is like the guy who is capable of handling like artistic direction and like physical design elements because mm-hmm. he has this background in it is interesting yeah. as well. And and like again, I think one of the benefits of like if he was doing this for image, you know, like it's not not that they would be like you can't do that cuz like the whole thing is like image lets you do whatever you want. But I just feel like maybe we can't do that. Basically. I think like if he had been working with any editor other than Dunbeer, then it would have been like do you need to have like this quality of paper stock? You need to, do you need to hand? Yeah. Do you like, do you need to hand wash every page? Like you realize that like 90% of your readers are not going to notice the difference between this, like hand brushed page and like a computer, like applied, like filter. Why don't you just do that and save us like weeks and like thousands of dollars, you know, just like there are, there are obvious places on these books where they could have probably like, created value for themselves financially. And I think that another editor almost definitely would have pushed Cook to do that. And the fact that we have these books kind of like as they are is mostly because Darwin Cook is really passionate about them, but also is in part because Scott Dunbeer is like passionate about Darwin Cook being allowed to realize his vision for the books. Right. And that's what I also wanted to kind of ask was like how maybe we talked about this a little bit in a previous episode, but like how 
does this come about? Like, is it really just like you can do anything you want just because you made the new frontier? Um, so I think we mentioned at the end of the last one, he was like finally clear of uh, not finally clear, but he had been under a DC exclusive for several years that he was done. So he had the freedom to kind of go where he wanted, do what he wanted. I'm going to see, I'm pretty sure he talks in one of these interviews about how he kind of like first connected with, with West, like about it. Yeah, so he did like specifically want to do adaptations of the Parker books, but he didn't want to do it basically unless Westlake was like on board all the way. So he linked up with Dunbeer. They like they had worked together already. I think we talked about him on some previous episodes. Like he edited the Spirit, things like that. But he had gone over to IDW, so they linked up there and then Dunbeer and some of the other executives at IDW were like kind of responsible for getting in touch with Westlake, who originally was like, this is a bad idea. Um, And then like they showed him some like Darwin Cook, like character studies, basically of like some of the stuff that he was working on. And he was like, okay, I can see how maybe this would actually be good. And then because it is such a crazy idea, like I don't know how that it like gets greenlit by anyone yeah and and like they were also like quite but like i really do think it is basically the strength of like it's not just new frontier but it is kind of just new frontier as far as like i do think that idw is sort of just like it's darwin cook like if he wants to work with us let's like make it happen his whole thing is like i must do parker it's so crazy to me though that like he basically, like, I mean, he does the New Frontier and then, like, a few other things. Mm-hmm. And then it's, like, it's Darwin Cook. We, like, we, you know, we talk about blank check law, but it's, not like, I, and maybe it is, that is, like, a blank check because it is, like, so singular and such a hit. But it just seems crazy to me that's, like, well, you wrote that one six-issue, min- like, maxi series. <laughs> Let me give you literally anything you want. <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, I, I do think that part of it is the fact that, like, he has had not nothing but hits, per se, since he came in. But he is, like, a huge fan favorite. He has never done anything really at this point that has been received as like not good. He has like a ton of Eisners. He's like very much in demand. And so, like, yeah, I I think it's like his reputation. The bedrock of his reputation is the new frontier. But when I, I think like when publishers are looking at him and being like, it's Darwin Cook, let's let him do whatever he wants. They're not saying because he did the new frontier. They're saying because he's like this enormously popular and like critically celebrated figure in the industry. And they don't really care necessarily why that is. And even though it is largely built on new frontier kind of above any of the other works that we've talked about at this point. And and I would say continuing beyond this point, they're just like, we don't care. He's got like seven Eisner's he's got a built in audience to a certain extent. But I feel like there are so many creators who like have that level of respect and have that level, like a, maybe even a larger level of fans. Like I'm thinking of like, maybe like Grant Morrison for an example where it's like Grant Morrison doesn't like get to do anything they want. Uh, <laughs> like, they kind of do. You haven't read their Santa comics. 
I mean, I guess to some extent, but it's like something like this, like it just feels so like over the yeah. top in terms of like the creative control involved and like the nicheness of the commercial appeal. I do it. think that part of that is just that like when you say like Grant Morrison, do whatever you want, they're like, okay, great. I'm going to write Batman for five years and make every Batman story in continuity because that's the kind of thing that they're interested in. Sure. If you say to Darwin Cook, Darwin Cook, you can do whatever you want. He's like, I'm going to adapt these crime novels that nobody's ever heard of with like so much tender, loving care that you're not even going to believe it. Yeah, I guess part of it is just like there aren't really that many other people who have like the specificity of vision that he might have. Yeah, and I do think that part of that is the fact that he like comics is like his third career. Right. And, you know, at this point, like he's not gonna ask like he's he's like a grown man i guess basically is what it boils down to and so he's not gonna be like i can do whatever i want boy i'd love to do a like a run on green lantern he's like no i want to do like (laughs) my crazy crime novels like 60s crime novel passion project now it is like again uh, we kind of alluded to on previous episodes like it is interesting that at this stage of his career when he has also expressed a lot of interest of as far as being like, I want to do some original graphic novels. I want to have some crossover hits of like the same ilk as Chester Brown and Brian Leo Malley. I want to get into digital comics more. And so like you, it's, it's interesting to read that and then be like, and of course then he did his next project, Richard Stark's Parker, the Hunter, <laughs> which right. is like so much the antithesis of all of those things where, well, I guess like it's, it's literary and it's, it is literary. It gets weird where it's like 130 pages or whatever. Yeah. And, and released as like an original graphic novel. But again, like, doing another book with someone else's name in front of the title, doing like an adaptation, doing it of this thing that is like respected, but not, you know, not, not a massive cultural icon or anything like that. And doing it in a format that is like, you know, not it's, it's more prohibitively expensive than say like an issue of a comic book would be like, he's asking people to make like a $25, investment kind of up front and like these books aren't huge like commercial smash hits not that like again you wouldn't expect them to be because as much as richard or as much as darwin cook's name is a draw most people are like what is this like i didn't read these books for a long time because i was like i have no idea what this is um and like i just generally tend to be skeptical of any property that begins with like somebody's like this (laughs) written by (laughs) not that person so it is like it is an interesting thing to like have happen at this point in his career, considering kind of what he has sort of stated as his career goals as he was kind of transitioning out of his DC exclusive contract. Yeah. I just, his, his career really confused me, I guess just because like he is such a unique case. It feels like, especially in terms of how like he doesn't, I don't even know like what like what are his interests exactly like they're not totally clear for me and like because you know I feel like you would expect a person like this where it's like it would be like they had like I'm thinking like Jeff Lemire where it's like they had a 40 issue Vertigo series and then he did New Frontier and Mm -hmm. then like then that kind of like unlocks him to basically do whatever he wants or even like Brian K. Vaughn where it's like he did a couple things and then he had like huge 
smash hits, of, but they're like ongoing series, and he never really does an ongoing series, really, does No, he? like these, in a way, these books are kind of the closest that right. he comes, because... He does like 25 issues of Parker. Yeah, basically, like he does, he does four graphic novels that are all in the kind of like 150 to 200 page range, and so when you kind of like get them all together, it is like sort of one solid chunk run. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's just... It's just so strange to me. And it's like, it's not that his work doesn't justify it. It's just like, how does one get, like, how did he get to do that Mm -hmm. so quickly? Yeah. Again, I think it is a combination of the, like, instant critical acclaim and the fact that, like, he is also instantly embraced by, like, fans far and wide. Yeah. And I think his age almost does have a factor as well. Yeah, where he's, like, he's he not a little like bit more... this like hot new like, you know, kid on the scene. He does project like, again, I, I mean, by the time this comes out, he's been working in comics for like almost 10 years. He's also like sure. well into his 40s though. So it's not like, yeah. here I am like, you know, at age 31, like at finally a veteran of this industry ready to make my big splash. He feels like he is like holding court in the same way as like a Jack Kirby type where again, this goes back to his kind of like timelessness that we talked about in the first episode Mm -hmm. where he just feels like he should be like 20 years older than he is. And I do think that part of that aura, you know, I, I think that it does like weirdly have a bearing on his career in that, like he's in his early forties and has only been working in the industry for 10 years, but he carries himself like, a seasoned, you know, like a legend of the industry and which like, frankly, he is, even though he's sure. only been, he's only been at it for like a certain amount of time. Like the new frontier is kind of like a legend making thing. And then to like follow that with, with the spirit, which like just carries like a certain amount of clout. Like there's not a lot of people who can say that like they did the spirit. Yeah. And then, and then I th- also think the fact that like, maybe part of the missing piece here is that he also becomes like a very in-demand cover artist in the same vein. Like that puts you into kind of like Alex Ross territory where it's like, this guy's like too good to do interiors. So they just pay him like insane amounts of money to do covers. And so when he does do interiors, it's like a newsworthy event where it's like Darwin cook is like back to back to like sequential storytelling. Like he's not just doing the covers, he's doing the art. And that makes it like almost an event unto itself. Yeah, and I and I guess like you know to really put a bow on it and really uh, circle back here, it's like we talked about sort of like the definitive thing for Parker is like his competence, and mm-hmm. I feel like that is like the thing with Darwin Cook as well, where it's like he is like he just projects so much competence and like confidence in his own abilities. I feel like mm-hmm. that it's like oh well, like I can trust this guy to like make a book and not worry about like it turning out crazy or like <laughs> it being bad or whatever, because like, I just like have trust in his like faculties within his chosen profession. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like maybe that's part of it as well, that it's like you never, I feel like I would never n- trust him, not trust him to make something good. Right. Yep. Great. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Big, big agree. Do we want to talk about the outfit at all? I mean, like, again, there's only so much to say about these because they are, like, pretty straight-ahead, hard-boiled detectives, right? But I do like... I like 
the way this is plotted. I mean, I, I really like this as sort of a crime concept in general. Like, it's a very Soderbergh thing. Oh, a Soderbergh-Parker movie? Um, there we, is, we talked about Soderbergh last time, We did, right? yeah. He, uh, there's like a commentary track for him on uh, Payback, which is the, or is it Payback? On the on the yes. Lee Marvin one. Point Blank. Yeah, Point Blank. That's right, yeah. There's a there's a commentary where it's like him and the original director. <laughs> wow, funny. that's crazy. <laughs> because it is very sort. But what I was gonna say is like ocean, like the oceans movies. Yeah. And Logan Lucky both have this very like you know it's weird because you know we sort of talked about the idea of it being fascistic, but then it's also very like anti system. Mm-hmm. Like it's about one guy against the system and is sort of using like. The faculties at his disposal to fight an enemy with a much larger like bankroll right it is it is like might makes right is the core ethos of it and yet like it is so much about it's really how just like, like the might of, it's more like being the smartest guy makes right right yeah yeah like being like it's being good at what you do is more important than like raw muscle yeah like parker is like and that's another part of it as well it's just like parker is pretty much always the underdog but he, like, gets out of his scrapes just because he is, like, the best at what he does. Yeah. And frankly, what he does ain't pretty. I think what you mean is what he does ain't very nice. What's that? That's Wolverine's famous saying, I'm the best there is at what I do, and what I do isn't very nice. Is that true? Yes. He doesn't say, what I do ain't pretty? No, he says what I do. <laughs> Maybe it's ain't very nice, but it's very, very, he's a real Borat type. It's more into very nice. <laughs> I'm looking this up because I don't believe you. All right. Prepare, prepare to be wrong. Um, so, yeah, the hunter, uh, the outfit. Well, I, we should say the hunter ends. Uh, it, it scraps that ending that we talked about. He just like gets the money from the outfit and then gets away clean other than being a wanted man. The outfit opens with this brief uh, interlude that adapts the man with the getaway face where he gets plastic surgery to change his appearance uh, and tells the story of this armored car job that he does with Handy McKay and Skim Lasker. He thinks that Skim Lasker is killed by his girlfriend at the end of this job, uh, and that he and Handy are the only two who make it out clean uh, with the boodle, as they call it in the book. <laughs> A very fun yes. word to say. I assume short for caboodle. One hopes. Uh, and then it rolls straight into the outfit. This is one where you can kind of feel that he has not yet fully decided which books he's going to adapt. So he was originally contracted while there wasn't a set number. It was just like you have eight years and you can make as many Parker comics as you want. And so he does four. But originally he had thought that he would adapt the first four books, which obviously he immediately veers away from because like uh, the man with the getaway face is in this. But it's like a prologue, basically. Right. And then the outfit is the third book. And so it opens with like this sequence that introduces Bet Harrow, who is like a major antagonist in the fourth book. But then he doesn't end up adapting the fourth book. So you've got like this, this pretty she seems cool. She, uh, yeah, her, her part is really good. So he like uh, an outfit guy tries to like assassinate Parker. He catches him and then like basically immediately realizes that Bet Harrow is a sociopath and is like, want to torture this guy? And she's like, Yes, <laughs> um, which, yeah, good, good bit. She does um, 
later blackmail him into doing a job for his for her father uh, using the murder weapon that she uh, absconds with. But so he is like ID'd by uh, Skim Lasker, who was actually alive, and it puts him in this kind of tough pinch where the outfit is now kind of back onto him. And he decides to end it once and for all by making good on some threats that he had made to the the headman of the outfit, Bronson, in uh, in the Hunter, which was that he would ask a bunch of his friends to pull jobs, just like for the sake of it, uh, and that he, basically he's like, I can't do that much damage to you, but I know like a hundred people who can all do a little bit of damage to you, and at the end of the day, that's going to add up to a lot of damage. So he sends out these letters asking his friends to basically hit any outfit jobs that they know of, uh, and they do. And there's a great kind of like montage sequence where he outlines the details of a few of those jobs, which total up to like over a million dollars of losses for the outfit. So uh, with that kind of pressure put on the top, he strikes a deal with one of the like lieutenants of the outfit to say like, if I kill... The uh, if I kill Bronson and you become the head of the outfit, I want to be like free and clear. And the guy basically says, "Delio." So and that's, again, that sort of gets back to like the idea of the way that he like escapes his scrapes is like he finds the person who like needs what he can provide, mm-hmm. and then they sort of like whether it's with like money or with favors or whatever, like they are like bankrolling his operation. Yeah. And it's like, like for Bronson, like Bronson is going to die because, because Mal Resnick stole $45,000 from Parker. And it's kind of like the absurdity of that. Like, sure. You can say like, it's, he's only going to be suffering the consequences of that because Parker is like so unhinged, but it's also kind of like the, the bitter irony of like, if he wants to, kill Parker he has to like kill Parker if Parker wants to get like this entire organization off of his back he had he just has to kill one guy and he can then swing like hundreds of people whereas he is making himself an issue for the entire organization and the only way to stop it is to like get him right exactly sorry I'm still looking at the Wolverine (laughs) and it seems that you're correct the one thing I will say is that it seems that the one thing I came across a couple times is in the Ultimate Spider-Man video game. Uh, that would <laughs> that would explain says, a lot. Well, he, he says, I'm the best at what I do, and what I do ain't pretty at all. Hmm. And, of course, there are frequent misquotes. I think this is like a common misquote. Yeah, that I think that's probably correct. I'm also looking at this other thing that we're what he says in the Hulk comic where he first appears uh-huh. is I'll just keep moving if you please because moving is the thing I do best <laughs> <laughs> so when he says I'm the best there isn't what I do but what I do best isn't very nice he means moving <laughs> oh boy so anyways Parker uh, gets handy to help him out with uh, knocking off Bronson, which they do, but uh, we get this third chapter interlude. This is this is a structure that's used for all of the books. Basically, like the first, it's it's always split into four parts, in which like part book one is Act One, book two is Act Two, and ends with like 
Parker usually like in a spot of trouble, a bit of a cliffhanger. And then part three is also act two repeated, but from the perspective of another like concerned party, usually the villain. And you basically see what they were doing for all of act two leading up to the, the like book two cliffhanger. So you like chart them back through the story and then book four switches back to Parker and it serves as act three basically. So for the outfit, we get like an extended sequence about Bronson basically and his like troubled marriage, which unfolds through um, like Monopoly uh, chance cards, which is an extremely good fit. Um, Yes, I do. I do love he has one (laughs) that is of Bronson cartoon Bronson hugging his wife and it says you love and hate her pay for your guilt. (laughs) Yeah. Really strong. Yeah, it's uh, it's great stuff. You've been elected chairman of the board, extort $50 from each player. It's all very good stuff. So Bronson is paid a visit by this guy, Quill, who explains basically the the losses and the failures of the, the outfit basically as uh, a criminal enterprise, which is that they are basically too legit. And uh, and then to like drive the point home as uh, Bronson is basically ruminating on like, are these like hired guns I've got even any good? Parker like comes exploding through his window uh, and kills him. There's an extremely good bit. Well, actually, I'll, I'll be interested to hear your uh, your perspective. <laughs> so Parker initially gives Quill a bunch of things that he wants him to pass on to the head of the new head of the outfit. And he's like, hold on, let me get a pen and write it down. This is too complicated. And he like turns back around and Parker's got a gun on him. And he's like, what are you doing? And Parker's basically like, you're right. It's too complicated. I'll tell him myself and (laughs) shoots him. Um, Which is a change from the book, which we'll we'll come back to in a second. But that's basically the end. He kills Quill. He takes the money from uh, from Branson. And as we said, goes to Frank Sinatra's uh, Kalnav whatever lounge to uh, get a stiff drink take care of something else stiff uh (laughs) and he also he does also have that great that great capper where he calls up uh carnes oh yeah yeah and he like delivers his his like 10 percent commission oh yeah yeah and then it's like stuff how did i parker get this 10 percent commission into your house like watch your back basically yeah so the killing of quill is an added thing that cook in the like long form interview that he did basically is like the fact that he lets quill live in the book to me is like one of the most out of character moments in the series and is like something that i would have pushed back against westlake on like had he been alive like i would have campaigned pretty hard to have parker kill quill and so like absent his authoritative voice i just like decided to make the change and so i first read that and was like that's legit. It's an extremely badass moment. <laughs> like it's just sure. cool when it happens in the book. It does feel very Parker, but then I was also very interested. I finished man with the getaway face today after having like read that interview. And there's a part in it specifically where he's considering killing these three people who it, this like ties into the convoluted plot with the like murder of the plastic surgeon who does his, uh, his, his surgery to change his face so basically these three people have like uh, a picture of his new face and are threatening to like out him to the outfit um, because they think that he might have killed the plastic surgeon, which he didn't. And he is basically considering killing them to like shut them up. But then there's like this inner monologue part that he has where he basically says like 
He doesn't like to kill people unless he absolutely has to, because he thinks that if you start killing people as a solution to all your problems, then killing people becomes the solution to all your problems. And basically like, that's like a one way ticket to like the death penalty and you just become like a serial killer. And then he kind of specifically thinks of boy, who would it be? I guess like primarily the inhaler lady. Oh, the, the prison guard that he killed to escape prison before the events of the hunter and the lady with the inhaler that he accidentally killed uh, when he like tied her up basically says like he he had like two times killed when he didn't have to both times it was impatient because he got impatient and now as a consequence there's like an fbi file somewhere that has his fingerprints associated with the murder of this like prison guard which is like a huge like axe hanging over his head basically right and and then like so he decides not to kill them because he's like basically like i'm never going to make that mistake where i kill someone because it was the most convenient thing to do again so then i like was reading that and i was like well he definitely kills Quill here because he like is impatient. So then I'm, but then I'm like, is that more in character or less in character? Because he's acknowledged that that is a bad idea for him, but also he has a history of killing people when he gets impatient with them. Yeah. I mean, like he does kill pretty indiscriminately. I will say like definitely, but he's not like, he's not like a serial killer or even like, like he is unnecessarily violent, but I would say especially like like, lethally, he only kills people when either it's like they have to die kind of by his code of ethics or it's like it's unavoidable, basically. I I guess. I mean, like, it's not like he it's not like he's like splinter selling it, you know? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Like he's not like trying like if, if he is in a splinter cell scenario that he is like. Most times, I guess, like, not in this specific instance, but most times just, like, going, it's like, okay, here's the plan. We go in and kill everyone. Yeah, it's it's interesting because, like, efficiency is kind of his whole thing. And it's definitely true that, like, from a, like, sociopath criminal's perspective, there are situations in which the most efficient and expedient thing to do is going to just be, like, kill someone who doesn't necessarily have it coming and yet at the same time, he also is frequently a guy who, like, he he clearly is not, like, a psychopath. He doesn't no. enjoy killing people. And he, at several... He kills for his benefit. Yeah. And, and at several points, he ruminates, basically, on, like, killing someone, even, like, you're not necessarily just getting away scot-free. Like, you incur a lot of risk when you kill somebody. Yeah. So he doesn't do more... it lightly. Yeah. That's more the thing of it, is that, like... It's like, well, killing someone is like a very drastic, and you know they sort of talk about like that in the hunter and stuff, where it's like, if I kill you, or you know, sort of the idea that's like, like with the casino job, they also say where it's like, if we kill you, then like that gets like the police involved, and it makes yeah. everything trouble for you, trouble for, for me, yeah, <laughs> yeah, which is very much within like the Parker ethos. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, this specific guy, I mean, I. I don't know. I guess there isn't really a reason to kill him per se, other than to just like. I, I mean, he's already killed like to... so many other people in that house. It's true. And it's not like like Karns isn't going to call him up and be like, "Hey, how come you killed Quill in cold blood?" Like he doesn't know or care who is like dead in that house. Yeah, and from the from the perspective of like, this is probably not something that went into 
anyone's mind <laughs> in the course of this. But, like, if you think about, like, his broader, like, strategic approach to the outfit, mm-hmm. then, like... Which has been pretty the, scorched earth. Yeah. Then probably, like, the fewest people who, like... Know what he looks a, like. Like, know what he looks like, like, have had any dealings with him, have any, like, reason to do anything against him... Like, so, like, this way it's, like, everyone is eliminated except for Karns, who, like, is not in his debt exactly, but, like, does have, like, They some have, like, an fear. understanding with each yeah. other, yeah. And, like, Karns does recur in several of the books very briefly, mostly, like, as a voice on the other end of the phone who someone calls him up and is, like, I want to deal with this Parker guy. And he's basically, like, yeah, don't no. do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's like sort of an interesting device in its own way that like he now has like, I just like things like that where it's like this does close a lot of loopholes for right. you. Where it's like, why wouldn't they get involved in this? And it's like, well, because, because they're afraid they're, of their boss. Yeah, like, <laughs> you know, has has basically issued a like, do not mess with this guy standing order. Yeah, which is always fun. Yeah. Um, is there anything else that needs discussing? I don't think so before, uh, like nothing that can't, uh, isn't better discussed in the next episode. Except we are to uh, another episode of these. <laughs> we are, my, we might, I mean, those ones, there's, there's still certainly more to talk about in terms of like kind of the background of this stuff. And, uh, and I will, I would say these are books that I am interested in digging into more, so we might uh, go through those ones a little bit more carefully, but um, sure. I mean, I think we can probably get twenty minutes out of its name being Slayground. <laughs> uh, yeah, Slayground, good stuff, and and like you know, hey, I can uh, I can run through and rank every Parker book if we want. Uh, <laughs> sure, sure. I, so, I'm not actually interested in doing that. I'll, I'll ask you about this next episode, just so we have more to do. <laughs> uh, what? Prime, prime, prime me with this uh, question. Well, so I no, I, just, I was just, I wanted to hear about your sort of involvement with Parker and your uh, your interest here. Oh, it's like, I, I mean. No! Yeah. <laughs> well, it's just not a very interesting answer. Like, I'd never heard of it before I read these comics. I read these comics. He's obviously very passionate about them. I was surprised how much I liked the stories. And then when I sure. also then was like reading around about it a bit more and it was like Brubaker like loves these books. Tarantino loves these books. Like it just, he, it just seemed to be like an influential thing for like a lot of people whose stuff I like. So then I was like, well, maybe I should just read these. And then, sure. and then they're all on audible included with your audible membership for free. So I was like, Great. And they're like all pretty short. They're like five hours um, a piece. So if you're listening to them like constantly, basically, you can just like plow through them. So that was exactly what I did. (laughs) They're like, surprisingly, there's a couple there's a couple that aren't uh, from like the latter era. Um, So we could we'll talk about like the the trajectory of like Richard Stark a little bit more next time. But he stopped writing the Parker books for like 25 years. And so there's a couple from after the hiatus that aren't available. But other than that, um, they're all there. They're all free if you already have an Audible membership. And they're all good books. So it was, uh, yeah, I, like I, two summers ago, maybe. It was just like all I did was listen to Parker books. Sure. Well, I guess I'll cross that off the list for next time. Yep, sorry. <laughs> um, Awards-wise. He wins a couple Eisners. 
In 2010, he wins Best Adaptation for another uh, from another work for Richard Strack's Park of the Hunter. He wins Best Writer-Artist in 2011 for The Outfit. And then 2012, he wins Best Graphic Album Reprint for the Martini Edition. Yeah. And also Best Short Story for seventh. The seventh. So, oh, okay. So it looks like he made the seventh for the Martini Edition, and then they included it in the score, which came out afterwards, which oh. makes more sense timing-wise. Oh, I see, I see, I see. Because the Martini Edition is just the first two. Yeah, that's right. Well, the first Martini Edition is, yes. Yeah, some Martini. Harveys as well for uh, for the same. Best Cartoonist for The, the Hunter, Best Artist for uh, The Outfit, Best cartoonist for the outfit, and then other stuff later on. And that's like, that's also so crazy to me that like he's winning best cartoonist for it the, is for this. Like it is interesting because he didn't write it. I mean, yeah, it is interesting. I don't want to like detract from him because no, that's like, not what I mean at all. Like I'm not trying to say like he didn't why even is this write guy, this like, winning award. But no, I, yeah. I do know what you mean though. Like it is so. There's a very, very little in these books that was not written by Richard Stark. And so for him to win Best Cartoonist, when I feel that what he's doing is more so like an editorial and like storytelling job as opposed to like a writing job, it is interesting. Like I I feel like if I was on the like Eisner committee, I would probably have been like, is this like best artist material definitely i don't know that it's the most appropriate thing to include for best cartoonist right because it's kind of blurring the lines yeah and the car- best cartoonist is so firmly about like the combination of writing and yeah. art and, and which and like again like he way. is he's he is writing an adaptation in a sense but because it's just an interesting case where like I normally wouldn't object to an adaptation winning someone best cartoonist, but because he is so specific and so loving about being like, I'm trying to keep as much of like the words as written by Richard Stark in here as possible. That does make me just kind of like bump against it and be like, well, he almost like should be credited as like a co-writer because it is so much his like his work. Right. You're right. And he is, and like, Darwin Cook in a way is almost like an editor in the sense that he is like sort of arranging. Yeah. He's making storytelling decisions as opposed to like writing dialogue or writing scenes. Right. Right. Yeah, which is interesting. Another interesting thing, he wins the Joe Schuster Award for Outstanding Cover for The Hunter, which, again, not to shade the Schusters, which are a perfectly respectable (laughs) institution of, uh, of CanCon, but I am kind of like, the cover, the cover is interesting within the context for the hunter. This is as far as being like, I know he originally pitched something that was much more kind of action oriented and showed it to Westlake and Westlake was like, this is too violent. And so he like went back to the drawing board literally and, and yeah. came out with this, which is much more, it's almost Subdued. like a horror cover where he's yeah. like sitting on the bed and, and Lynn is like dead in the bed behind him. And she's, like, black and white. Yeah. And he's in color. So, like, it's an interesting cover from that perspective, but I wouldn't say it's, like, a standout from his cover work. But maybe it's a thing where, like, you're sort of looking at it in terms of the 
broader graphical presentation, like the, you know, the sort of overall art design, like the back cover as well. Maybe. Yeah. I guess I don't know if they have and like, it's not just like the piece of art. Yeah. I guess like it is true that like the Eisners and the Harveys having stuff like best graphic album, right. especially best like reprint stuff does lend itself to something that like kind of considers those, those elements more so, but I, I don't know. Outstanding cover. It does surprise me a little bit. I know what you mean. There, there's like a little bit, I, I think it's pretty interesting the way that it sort of plays with light. Like it has the lamp and the lamp sort of like projects white light, which renders things like out of color, which I think is a cool idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm just going to quickly send you the cover that he did for the issue of the comics journal that his big interview is in, uh, which was done in 2007. So while he was working on this, Okay, and I'm looking at this picture of Robert Duvall. He's sort of wearing a dingy gray tank top. There appears to be a silent... Oh, here we go. Sure. Oh, I did not realize that there's text on the mirror. But so the, the cover that he did is a portrait of Power Girl, whose costume notoriously has what is commonly referred to as the boob window, uh, which is basically just like an open bare circle of skin on her cleavage. And she is like done in the classic Darwin Cook way and she's grinning and over the boob window she is holding a mirror instead, which I think is a really good conceit. It The mirror yes. does say, which I had not previously <laughs> seen, objects in mirror should grow up and move on, which I do think is uh, is putting a bow on a bow as far as... Hat on a hat. Yeah, hat, a hat on a hat, etc. Yes. As far as like, I think that the artistic statement of just having it be the mirror is like pretty effective Right. And so to have this like little shot on it as well, I don't know. I feel I feel like it's a little bit more uh, nuanced and and artistically successful in my eye to uh, to just have it be the mirror. But uh, sure. but he's not. I mean, Darwin Cook is a lot of things. I wouldn't say subtle is necessarily one of the words I would use to describe him. Well, sometimes, sometimes. Uh, it's it's almost it is like in white font like it's not it's pretty it's, hard to I had, I had i've seen this cover many many times and i had never realized until right now that there was yeah. text on the mirror yeah sales wise to uh to briefly digress here i did accidentally close it july 2009 so he, he did also put these out really fast the hunter came out in july right. 2009 and the outfit came out in october 2010 so just a little over a year that's like pretty, I mean, I know they're not long books, but that's like a pretty quick turnaround, I think, for for ha- like the fact that he's doing everything. Right, like designing, like conceptually like designing yep. the whole thing yep. and then like doing the art and all that, yeah. So The Hunter debuts at number seven on the uh, trade paperbacks list with an estimated 4,691 units sold. And that's coming in behind uh, another indie favorite, Mouse Guard, a bit of a red wall type uh, type beat. Cool book. Sure. Whatever happened to the Man of Tomorrow, and then a few uh, a few popular long running books of the time, such as Rage of the Red Lanterns, Whatever Happened to the Cape Crusader, The Boys Volume Four, Hundred Bullets Volume Thirteen. You read Hundred Bullets, right? I have not read Hundred Bullets. I was thinking about because I was just talking with people about like the idea of covering certain people mm-hmm. 
and then Brian Azzarello. So where it's like, <laughs> he does have a hundred issue series. He does have a hundred issue series. And, uh, and I think a less, well, I, I have, I have issues with the direction that that book takes considering how good the premise is. Sure. I mean, to, haven't you said something before about like him just like pressing on to get to hundred issues? Oh, I definitely think that he probably could have written a like really good 45 issue series. But <laughs> when you call it a hundred bullets and it's a huge smash hit, you know, you're, yeah, you just got to press you're in on. good shape. The outfit is uh, is a better seller. Clocks in at number three in its debut month with 7,500 units just behind uh, Superman Earth One, a so-so comic, and Walking Dead Volume One. Walking Dead Volume One, it's all right. You read Walking sure. Dead? I have read probably like 50... You get to the prison? Plus. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, prison's good stuff. Another series that could have been a great 45 issue. <laughs> I recently discovered that the walking dead tv show isn't over yet oh we've and talked I, like, about hadn't... this on the podcast <laughs> okay good because i had like an existential crisis oh that, that was on this show yes yeah yes um but yeah so the outfit you know I, I'm, I'm actually surprised i thought i had looked at these earlier and seen that they were like not huge sellers now right. like 7500 units at 25 bucks a pop like that's that's pretty good like i think if you broke that down into like single issues it would it would be clocking in probably like in the top 50 i want to say maybe even a little higher than that so yeah i don't, I don't know maybe like maybe i have to eat my words here a little bit because this title other than having Darwin Cook's name on it, there is like nothing to really commend it from a commercial perspective. Right. Sure, Even yeah. in terms of like, like I mentioned, his like whole marketing campaign is that like he didn't do a big press circuit. He gave like one long form interview about it to one outlet and then was kind of like, so yeah, check it out on my uh, forthcoming Parker adaptation. <laughs> right. Uh, and yet, and yet, you know, again, it, it, this isn't like changing anybody's lives, but um, I mean, now that I think about it, he does in one of those interviews say like it, it's doing well enough that I'm not going to have to go draw the flash or something to like make <laughs> ends meet while I'm working on these Parker books, which I think is like kind of a good a good way to position it. But it's still somehow better than I thought that it would be doing. Sure. Well, I'm tired of this. What? <laughs> You know how much I love your sales talk, uh -huh. but I think that will have to do it for today's episode. I mean, save, it doesn't save have some of the to tank. do it. <laughs> save some. You got to save some for next episode. Uh -huh. You got to keep some in the tank. Oh, I've got World of Tanks over here. <laughs> oh, you were so ready with that. <laughs> I've told you about my classic bit uh, of doing the Irish accent. It's like, World of Tanks, <laughs> when, uh, <laughs> when I'm thankful for something. <laughs> I believe I've not only heard about it, but experienced it, uh -huh. but I had forgotten about it till now. <laughs> Thank you all for listening. World of Tanks for listening. Sure. Uh, you know what I actually came up recently when I was talking with someone uh -huh. is, I, I think you'll remember this, is not a heinous crime. Oh, of course I remember that. <laughs> In the process of being issued my first speeding ticket. <laughs> yes. I forgot how Irish that guy was. That was <laughs> he was really Irish. That was crazy. <laughs> I do frequently say not a heinous crime in an Irish accent as a result well. of that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, please remember 
to rate, review, <laughs> and subscribe. You can follow us. But if you us don't, it's on- not a heinous crime. Absolutely. But you can follow us uh, uh, at Got the Runs Pod. You can email us at Got the Runs Pod at gmail.com. Next week, we're getting to the end. It's crazy. Um, we got another one week, after this. Yeah, we got two. It's not a yeah. two more. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is a two more. We'll be doing the other two Parker books Parker the Score and Parker Slayground. <laughs> <laughs> so look out for that. I assume Parker finds himself in like a battle royale or a Kumite type scenario. Oh, it's so much crazier than that. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. Okay. Uh, but we will check those out next week. But until then, to, to be, be continued. continued. <laughs> it's not crazier from a like that's okay. like, like yeah from a plotting perspective so much as it's like crazy